Hey, I'm Brian Monkars, producer, mixer, engineer, and you're listening to Talkin' Blues. So I'm going to ask you first, producer, mixer, engineer, tell me, like not too technically, but tell me each of those roles, what they are. I think, you know, traditionally a producer, a producer's role in the studio is, is to work with the material, you know, get the songs in good shape, work on the arrangements. Um, and then, you know, during a recording session, really bringing the best out of the band, right. you know, creatively, uh, as well as performance wise. Um, in terms of an engineer, really, it's more of a technical gig, you know, really just making sure you're capturing the best sonics uh, to tape or computer hard right. drive. Um, and then in terms of a mixer, it's really, I think, wearing both hats, the creative hat and the technical hat and, and taking all the tracks that we've recorded or an outside client has recorded and, and, and then bringing it all together, you know, in a creative way that sonically stands out. So for, for somebody who doesn't have an idea about mixing, and mixing is huge in terms of the process of making a recording, um, it's correct to say that you can mix an album thousands of different ways. Yeah, I think that's the beauty of it. <laughs> I mean, we all, I guess it's pretty subjective because we all hear in different ways. So is that a difficult thing in terms of I bring you my album and, you know, it's 24 tracks with an orchestra or whatever, and I say, here it is. Is it easy for you to understand what my vision of the album is or is it, like, how does that work? Yeah, like, I usually connect with with an artist before, you know, we start mixing and I try to find out, you know, some of the things that, that they like and what they want to sort of get out of a mix. Um, and then I really just, you know, get the tracks up on my computer and listen to them through my monitors. And I kind of let my gut go with the, with the details of, you know, how to get us there. Right. You know, and I, I think certainly over the years, I think I've developed a sound and things that I like when I mix. And I think that attracts certain clients to me. Um, and, and I think, you know, some of the, the clients I've had the best connection with sort of leave me to my own devices at first and then sort of right. like interject their opinions. Well, hopefully you've gotten to a point where people hire you because they know your work and yeah. they want to do, they want you to do what you do. That's, that's exactly it. All right. So I, I'm going to ask you this now, although I could ask later, but at what point did you think you got to that point where you thought, you know, I kind of, and I don't think it's a, a sound because it varies by project, but a style or something that, that defines who you are as a mixer. You know, I think it's funny because I, I, uh, I mean, this might be a longer answer than you were hoping for, but, but just to sort of go back, um, I always mixed. I never thought of myself necessarily as just a mixer, right. you know, just when I was starting out in, in the industry, you know, budgets would dictate that, you know, I would end up just mixing everything that I recorded myself. Right. And then about nine years ago, I met, uh, a guy named Joe D'Ambrosio, who's, who's my manager. And he was the one that sort of said to me, Hey, why don't you think about taking on like just mix clients? And it was something I never even really thought about. And he pushed me to do. And, uh, and so I think through that experience, like I was really able to develop myself as a mixer separate from pr producing. And it is very much a different thing, mixing other people's material than material I've recorded myself. Right. In many ways, I, I almost prefer mixing other people's material because, you know, I'm not as close to it. And it's, it's easy for me to take a step back and focus in and kind of come in at the end of the process. Um, but I think, I guess maybe around 2014, um, you know, I'd been really working on, like you said, sort of, sort of <clears throat> a sound that I think, you know, that that's true to me. I like... I like dirty sounding things. I like things that are distorted, <laughs> right. um, broken sounding, you know, and, and as well as like, I have a love of like things hi-fi, but it's sort of mixing those two things. And I've always, you know, I've, I've always sort of approached my mixes with, with that in mind. Sometimes early on it would annoy people. Like they would think it was too distorted. Right. Um, 
but after they listened to it for a while, they'd get used to it and they would think it's really exciting. Um, but I never kind of veered off that path. Um, and then I had the opportunity, I guess it was around 2014, uh, to do one mix for Our Lady Peace. And I think that's kind of when it all sank in and it was like, yeah, okay. The, 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 I mean, that's a band that, you know, I love. Yeah, yeah. I grew up listening to, totally respect. Um, and then I thought, you know, okay, so they're connecting with the sounds they're hearing from my other mixes, um, you know, and they gave me a shot to mix for them, which then carried over to me mixing their, their last album. So basically when you're mixing, you, you get the, the raw tracks yeah. of the different instruments and whatever. Yeah. And you decide how it will be put together. Um, are there times when you get a mix and it's just maybe not recorded the way you would like to have it recorded? That happens a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I because I have like I've been recording for twenty years, so I haven't. You know, when I when I record, I record a certain way. Right. Um, but I think you know my job as a mixer really is to is to bring the best out of the material I'm given. Um, you know, sonically. So I definitely have ways of making, uh, you know, recordings that, that might not be up to par sound, sound great, you know, and I'm, I'm confident in, in being able to do that. Right. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Um, we're going to go back a little bit. Yeah. I know that you started as a guitar player. I think you started on piano first. Yeah, I, I I did, my mom made me, <laughs> made me take the, the, piano lessons, the, the, which was great. I mean, it was a good intro. I yeah. was super young. Maybe if I'd started with guitar, I wouldn't have stuck with it at that age. I don't but, know. But by the time you took the piano, were you not really into the guitar? You, your mom just wanted you to play the piano first? Yeah, I was really into the... Yeah, and I was so into the guitar that after like a year or two of piano lessons, the piano teacher took my mom aside and said, you know, Brian really wants to play guitar. <laughs> I think you should let him now. So, um, and what were you playing? Or, so, what what were you into on the guitar? Say, what guitar stuff were you into while you were learning piano? I get uh, that was. I mean, I was young. I was like, I must have been like eight or nine or something. But like you that. already so knew you wanted to play the guitar. I already knew that I wanted to play guitar. I mean, I grew up in a house that was very. I, they, my parents weren't musicians, but they had such a massive appreciation for music. So there was always like amazing music in my house. And it was mostly like old soul records and Motown, you know, like they would listen to Otis Redding and right. Sam Cooke and the temptations. And so I, I was sort of exposed to, you know, that kind of vibe from a pretty early age. It must've been, yeah, I don't, I, I don't necessarily know what it was that, that drew me to the guitar, but it, was a strong thing. Like I remember hearing Aerosmith you know, for the first time and thinking, wow, like that, that's something that I want to do. Like and it was more hearing than seeing. Like there wasn't a guitar player you saw and thought, that's what I want to be. Well, no, at first it was more hearing. It was more hearing. I mean, like spoken like a st studio guy. <laughs> yeah. It was more, it was more of a, more of a sound thing. I mean, we, you know, I don't, I don't really, I don't remember like in my childhood sitting down and watching, you know, music videos or concerts until I was a little bit older and had already been playing guitar. Mm -hmm. um, but I do remember, you know, like my dad taught me how to operate the turntable when I was like three. And so I would put, was very interesting. <laughs> I would put records on and, and listen, you know, whatever I wanted. Um, I will, I will say though that, you know, after I'd been playing guitar for, several years and I, I mean it was in the 80s so I was very much into like 80s hair metal and mm. <laughs> like Van Halen and Steve Vai and those kinds of guitar players <clears throat> but I had a family friend that was annoyed with me for you know loving Ibanez guitars and <laughs> and that kind of thing and, and he actually took me to see Stevie Ray Vaughan on the Instep tour so that would have been 80. Was that the CNE con? No, the, it was uh, at the it was at the dome at the Sky Dome. That's yeah, yeah, with Jeff. Yeah, yeah, that was I was there. Oh man, that and that was the first time I actually said to myself, "Whoa, like this this guy, that's what I want to be," because I'd never seen anyone play with that amount of passion before. Right, it was like he was channeling, you know, world worldly spirits. It was. <laughs> And, and everything he approached, every note he hit was like 
two hundred percent. It was just unreal. But more so than Jeff Beck and Jeff Healy, who are no slouches either. No, no slouches. No, there was just something different about Stevie, and it, it connected with me. And I think, I mean, obviously, I, you know, I was a, I was a fan of Jeff Healy and Jeff Beck, sort of leading up to that show. And I think probably became bigger fans of, of both artists. And I, I got to work with Jeff Healy a couple times in the studio, which was lots of fun. Yeah. Um, unbelievable talent, but there was just, I think I could connect with Stevie just because I had been listening to guys like Van Halen and Steve Vai and, and Stevie was like a guitar hero like that. Like yeah. he was like a real legitimate, like, but just almost on a different plane. Like it was, you so know, this is grade nine. That would have been in grade nine. Okay. Yeah. And, and then that actually made an impact on you. Oh, I sold my Ibanez, bought <laughs> bought a Fender Strat, and just immersed myself in the blues. I mean, it was like kind of pre-internet. So I would read like Guitar World magazine and there'd be an interview with Stevie and he'd talk about his heroes, you know. So you would, you know, I would then go out and buy an Albert King record or a Freddie King record, buddy guy. And I got exposed to all of these blues artists that I I had never even heard of, but it was such a, a close link to the music I had grown up listening to because, you know, blues isn't that far off from, from Motown yeah, or soul. Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a very interesting time. Okay. So now you, you, you saw your guitar get a new strap. How easy is it for you to learn to play like Stevie Rivon? I mean, I presume that's the route <laughs> you went, right? Oh yeah. That was, I wanted to play. I mean, it was you, I couldn't. I mean, they're like, I don't know that there aren't many people. I think that, you know, there's like a handful of guys that can maybe touch yeah, a little bit of what he was doing. Um, I mean, you could sound like it a little bit. I, or I could sound like it a little bit, but it was, uh, yeah. I mean, he, he, he had not only, I think not only did he have a profound influence on my guitar playing and who I would become as a musician, but just the, the way I saw his passion was something that like I would still apply to the, to my work every day. Mm-hmm. You know, when I go into the studio with a band, it's like that energy and, and the, the sheer passion of, of being in the moment and creating music, I think is like, that was a huge influence on me, you know, not just his guitar playing. Right. So I know you played in bands yeah. through high school and into university. Yeah. Was music being a musician an option? I, you know, and I had thought about that. It was something that I, that I wanted to do. I thought, yeah, I could, I could do this. I could like really focus my energy on, on guitar playing. And I was actually thinking I I wanted to go to university. I wanted to, you know, sort of get that higher education. And I I had thought about like pursuing music in university. And so if you did, and while you were playing at this point, are you playing blues? Are you playing blues? Yeah, rock? I was playing. I sort of went from like being in rock bands to more, you know, focusing on on blues. And I had like a little blues trio. Right. Uh, although, arguably, don't have the greatest voice in the world, so I don't know how far that would have that would have actually gone. But you know, we were playing places like the Black Swan, doing three sets a night, and you know, the Silver Dollar, and it was good. I mean, there was a pretty vibrant yeah, yeah. blues community in the in the nineties here in Toronto. And, and, uh, I I mean, I enjoy, I enjoyed it so much. Um, but ultimately like I was always the guy in the, in the bands that I was in that, that loved being in the studio. So when, you know, when, when we were recording, you know, the engineer would say, okay, send, send one member of the band to be present during the mix. And I'd always be the guy that would go because I loved sitting there and I loved that worked out well. Yeah, totally. And I loved learning. Um, and, uh, and I, and I think I came to a crossroads where it was like, okay, I have these two loves, you know, do, do I, which one do I, do I pursue, you know, am I going to go the guitar route or am I going to go the studio route? Because I, I, I thought like at the time I'd have to just focus a hundred percent of my energy on one of those. Right. Um, and ultimately I made the, the choice to be in the studio because I just felt that maybe I was a little bit stronger and more creative in terms of my studio chops um, and what I had to offer to the musical community than I was as a guitar player. I would presume either direction is a, it's not an easy path to follow, right? Like, no. and, and it's, 
I don't even know, and I want to get into this, but I don't even know how you say, okay, I'm going to start a studio and become a producer, mixer, <laughs> engineer, right? I mean, I, I mean, you can do that and set up equipment in your basement, but that doesn't mean that people are going to come to you and record no. with you. Um, no. So automatically you think, well, musician's a tough life, but this option isn't an easy path. <laughs> no, either. there was no no easy path. I mean, I think ultimately my experience... You know, having played guitar for for so long and having been in bands, um, I think it helped, and it still does, but especially in the early days, yeah, like yeah. it helped me attract clients, you know, because I could speak to them as a musician. I wasn't like just the guy behind the glass. I was, you know, I was one of them. Right. And uh, I would pick up my guitar and, you know, work out parts with them. And it just felt like I was kind of a member of the band when I was working. But is, it, is it hard to, when you're dealing with, Musicians of like the Tea Party and Our Lady Peace at a level where they've seen success, they've been around, you know, they've been, they've been around. They've been they around. Know, yeah. They know their yeah, stuff. Yeah. Is it hard to say, hey, I got an idea. How about this? And they might look at you and go, well, I don't know. There, Who is this guy? <laughs> it's funny. That I have, I've found throughout the years of doing this that the most successful artists are the ones that are the most open-minded. Mm. And I think that there's a, a huge link between them being open-minded and their success. Right. Um, so they're, you know, when I, when I worked with our lady peace and the initial conversations I had with rain, I mean, they, he's, he's got a fantastic home studio in LA. It's just absolutely stunning. Um, and he does, you know, he does a lot of the overdubs things at, at his place. And he said to me, you know, if there's anything, you wish we had recorded and we didn't let us know and we'll record it and send it to you. You know, like he was very open-minded. Um, and Jeff Martin from the tea party, the, the same thing, very, I mean, he had a, like b- both of them have strong visions of how yeah, they yeah. want their bands to sound, you know, and I, and I would have to sort of, you know, incorporate that vision with, you know, where I saw maybe sonically some of the things should go. Um, but they're both like, hugely open-minded which made it so much fun to work with because it was very collaborative and they're also very talented oh yeah (laughs) so when can you give me an example of something and i don't know if you wound up asking them for something else i did so what would be an example of something that they didn't provide you and you said hey can you get me this you know sometimes it would just be like a dynamics thing so it was like you know I, i found as i was mixing that like maybe i couldn't get a chorus to like pop out as as much as I had hoped. Right. So I might have asked him for I mean I, it's hard for me to remember specifics. This was a few years ago, but I you know, I might have asked him for like a synth line or like um some extra percussion and a harmony or something like that just to help right. the chorus pop a little bit. Oh, interesting. And any time like he would totally do it. And, and he would, you know, he would hear my mix and then sometimes on his own, just go and, and add some extra things and then send them to me to work into the mix. Right. So it was sort of like a back and forth for a while. So, you know, what, what I imagine, and I, I just, I don't really understand because I don't do that, but is there are times when you hear something and you imagine things, how it should sound. Is that an easy thing for you to get? I will say, I don't know that it's easy, but I will say that when I have a vision in my mind, as I'm approaching a mix, those mixes always turn out better. So if I, if I can kind of in my mind hear how the finished product should sound, right. And then I've got a goal and then all the decisions I make are working towards that goal. Then I find my mixes translate way better in the end. Yeah. But as opposed to like just, turning knobs until something sounds right and then <laughs> that doesn't happen does it <laughs> <laughs> no never <laughs> so, I mean yeah sometimes it'll happen that way but if if I can really walk into my day of mixing with a clear cut definitive you know end game then then those mixes always work out better right so you decide to go to pursue the studio route yeah you went to Ryerson for radio and television Right. Yeah, because at the time I had been working um, at Q107 a little bit mm-hmm. in the production department. So that sort of opened my eyes to Ryerson and to the radio and television program. I mean, I thought maybe like if music didn't work out, I could go and do something in radio. Right. Because um, I loved 
I love that as well. I mean, it's all music based yeah, yeah. and, um, but, but yeah, so I ended up at radio and television arts at Ryerson. So I know it's a very, um, respected program. You come out of that and now what you say, I want to start a studio. <laughs> no, it was, it, it's weird. I was sort of at another crossroads in my life where, um, I was offered a job at a post-production audio facility as an assistant engineer. And it was like, it was a good job. Like it paid really well for someone that was just getting out of university. Like it was good. So would this be mainly movies, television, commercials? Um, I think more corporate than anything else. Um, so I, but yeah, I think some of that, not, not the most creative gig in the world, but a gig in a recording studio. And it pays. And, and, and it paid really well. Yeah. But the hours were like crazy. And I was going to be the junior guy. And, you know, the during the interview, the guy, I think it was on a Friday. And he said, you can have this job. But, um, but you know, take the weekend to really think about it. Because it means if, if, you, if you do accept this offer, you won't be able to focus on music anymore. And he was right because I would be way too busy yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. And so I thought so about I it. Focus being playing in bars and stuff. Is that what you mean? Oh, or no, like like pursuing a career as a music producer. Oh, okay, okay. You know, I'd have to put that on hold. Right. So I I thought about it over the weekend and I thought to myself, well, you know, I didn't I didn't come all this way, you know, my entire life focusing on music to then end up taking a job for money that I might not enjoy as much as recording (laughs) (laughs) or recording music. Yeah. Yeah. So I ultimately, I turned the the job down and, um, how difficult was that? You know, it wasn't actually that difficult (laughs) because I was young. I didn't know. I mean, I think today would have probably been a harder decision, you know, having kids and a wife and a mortgage, but, but, but then I just was sort of like, I, I, I had this path where I wanted to get to, and this was just a, like blocking the path. So it was very easy to say, no, I don't, I don't want to block the path. Now, like it was maybe easier for me to make the decision. I will say because, because my mom was always, always told me to follow my passion. Her, she would always say to me, like, if I ever, if ever she saw that I was wa- like wavering in, in any of my decision-making, she would say, you know, do what you love and the money will come. Really? Yeah. She, you know, my, my dad had sort of come from Holocaust survivors and he was pushed into a career that, that, that he didn't necessarily want. Right. You know, he, so they, they. He was a dentist, right? He was a dentist. Yeah. Okay. So he, he wanted, uh, he didn't want to be a dentist and he hated it and he would come home like pretty unhappy every day. But, you know, we, we lived a good life because of that. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, but my mom, I mean, my dad passed away when I was young. So my mom would always sort of, you know, take a look at my dad's life experience with work and she would sort of push me to do what I loved. So I wouldn't end up like that. Um, and, uh, and I mean, I'm, I'm grateful that she did. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes I have to call her and you know get her to, to still reinforce <laughs> what is it you yeah, the decisions that I've made, but, um, but yeah, I mean that that's so it wasn't that that decision wasn't as hard as you would think it it would be. But it's still what happens after that decision is more important, right? Right. <laughs> so what what happened was Ryerson I, mean, I had done I had done fairly well at the school like especially in the audio stream. So they offered me a job as a teaching assistant. Oh. Um, which was like the hours were great because it was sort of like shift work. So you were either there in the day or you were there in the night and it would free up time to do other things. Right. Um, so I took the job as a, as a TA for two years and I saved some money and bought equipment with it. And then I rented space, um, from an existing studio at Queen and River, a studio called MCS. And I just sort of set up shop in one of their rooms. Okay. So you set up shop, you have equipment, you have mics and you're ready to record. How do you get people in? (laughs) So... It, it was, it was, it was an interesting time. I mean, it's hard because if you, you know, thinking back, like I had no credit list. I had never really worked on anything that wasn't, yeah, yeah. you know, a friend's band or my own music. Um, so what I would do, I mean, I had to make money cause I had rent to pay. So I have, 
graduating from radio and television arts, there were some friends of mine who went on to uh, produce some television shows. And I ended up mixing some of those television shows, which would help me pay the bills and then afford me the opportunity to bring, you know, young bands into my studio um, for below, you know, maybe an average cost at the time, just so I could build up my credit list. One of the bands happened to be this killer kind of Britpop sounding band called Pilot, who then changed their name to Pilot Speed. And one of my friends sort of knew them and they needed a place to quickly do some demos because they had a record label interested. And so I remember literally I was sick and I had to stay up all night because we had like, we had no time to do it. We literally like, we must've been in the studio for like 20 hours. And I remember coming home at like six in the morning, waking my wife up and like putting the CD on and saying, you got to hear this. This is pretty (laughs) cool. And uh, they ended up getting their record deal Um, I mean, I had just started in my career, so I was a little bit too green of a producer to kind of have the record label say like, okay, you should be producing this. Um, So they hired another producer, but that relationship with that band and the, the new producer that was working with them really helped sort of lift my career pretty quickly. Wow. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's kind of luck. But, well, but nothing. I wonder about that. Really like this lot. comes up a lot, right? Yeah, yeah. Something, and and oftentimes it's it's they were there at the right place at the right time, but they had to still deliver, right? They that, had that to deliver, and point. I had to deliver, and yeah. we and and I mean, I can still I don't remember all this. Like, I mean, this is like it's got to be like eighteen years ago or something. Yeah. Like, so I don't like I don't re- I don't remember all the sessions from back then, but I remember this particular one because it was a big turning point, and it was it was listening back to it and thinking to myself, wow, like this does actually sound really good. And and you know, I mean, the band was fantastic. Todd the singer has an incredible voice, and he's gone on to become a very successful songwriter in Nashville. Uh, but he's he has probably one of the the best voices you could record. I wow, mean, just flawless and. And so listening back, it was like, you know, this is, it sort of validated all of my decision-making because I thought to myself, well, this is something that I can, you know, that I can do and like be great at and, right. and, you know, just listen. Like it sounded, it sounded cool. Um, yeah. So, yeah, when, when you see some sort of result early on, but it's also difficult to maintain that. Like once that happened, because I know sometimes there is a bit of success and that generates more opportunities. Yeah. I don't know if it's always like that. Did In this case, was it like that, that more it, doors opened up for you? It definitely more doors opened. Um, those demos led me to meeting a band called The Junction. And they were, um, maybe, maybe this is like 2003 or so. Yeah, I think that's about right. They were a really cool like indie rock band from Brampton that I connected with right away. Um, and we, there's just something about that band. And I kind of knew in the back of my mind, I'm like, this is really special. You know, they, they, they didn't have a lot of money. So we did sort of, I just did like one song on spec really back right. then. Um, and I just, there was just something super cool about, about what they were doing. So we did this one song, then we applied for a grant. Right. And then we ended up doing an EP and that EP got into the hands of the VP of a and at Universal, you know, through a mastering engineer friend that had mastered the album again, like, I mean, luck, but not luck. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and he loved it. And I bumped, I, as luck should have it. I, I was at Canadian music week that year and I happened to bump into him and he's like, Brian, your name came up because I have this like, awesome EP in my office and he's like can you come meet with me next week and that sort of started the band on a path of getting signed to Universal which then ultimately led to me getting to produce that record which you know had a bigger budget and was you know the band was signed to Universal sadly it was also the time when the music industry was about to tank none of us could really see but mid 2000s the guy Dave Porter, who was the VP of A&R at Universal, and just an absolutely amazing music guy. Yeah, and also a very well-respected person. 
Oh, super well respected. And he ended up, he really championed the band at the label. And then he ended up being let go. And so there was no one at the label that really like understood the band the way he did. Mm. And things just sort of fizzled, even though we, we had radio success with that album. And, um, it just sort of, it was just an unfortunate time. Yeah. But it's a tough business. Oh, it's so like, tough. It's There's crazy, right? There's so many ups and downs. I mean, I think it's, it's, I remember like watching Shark Tank and Mark Cuban saying like, like the music industry and like the restaurant business are two of the toughest industries to make a living in. Right. You know, so I, I definitely feel grateful that I'm able to do what I do and, you know, make a living doing it. I mean, there's like, I, I wouldn't even like to see the percentage of people that like have actually gone through to, to, yeah, yeah. to, to do that. Well, I, I asked most people that I interview if there was ever a point where you thought, oh, maybe I didn't do the right thing or maybe I should do something else. Had you reached any, I mean, I know that you just explained how you had success early, uh, but did you ever have a really hard time where you thought, oh man, I don't know if this is working out? Yeah, I mean, there has, there, there definitely, I mean, there's one specific moment in my career that I can remember where it was like, I almost had to put like a time limit on like it, if this thing doesn't happen now, like by this date, like I got to think about doing something else. What would that have been? It was shortly after that sort of crash had happened. Right. Like in the, in the music industry where, you know, people just weren't spending money on music anymore yeah, yeah. because, you know, no, like people weren't buying music. I mean, it was like the whole Napster thing yeah. at that time. Um, and everything, I mean, everything was changing. So the, a lot of like my career got put on hold, you know, I'd had this like initial success and then it was like, then it just kind of came to a little bit of a halt. Um, but during that time, that's like, I had met Bob Ezrin, um, who really, you know, we, we connected really well and, and he kind of became my mentor and kind of helped me guide through those times you know, and, and whenever he could, he would throw me some work. Wow. And uh, and then he introduced me to another producer named David Bottrell. And Dave, you know, I respected immensely. I mean, he had done like the Tool albums in the 90s and, you know, worked with Peter Gabriel. And his recordings to me always stood out as like amongst the best I had ever heard. Right. Um, and he's he's from Hamilton and he had just moved back. He'd been in the UK and New York for most of his career. And so Bob introduced me to David and Dave and I started working together. Um, and, and once that happened, it kind of, you know, I, I was engineering for him more than I was producing on my own, right. but it was, again, I was learning a ton Yeah, and it was sort of helping me weather the storm through a, you know, a, a tough time. Um, but the turning point, you know, was, was around that time I started working with Dave. <clears throat> I remember my wife and I, sort of saying like, we'll give it to, to Christmas. And I don't know, like it was, I don't know when it was, it was the summer or something. And if like something doesn't happen, then, you know, got to think about like maybe teaching more. Cause I'd been teaching a bit at Ryerson or do, doing something right. until things got a little better. Um, but again, you know, I was working with Dave and he got a call from a band called Monine, an awesome, like kind of, or they were an awesome punk emo band right. also from Brampton. And Dave at the time was working with another band in LA and he couldn't take the gig. And he said, well, you know, why don't you use Brian as the producer? You know, we'll do it. We shared a studio together. So he said, you know, we'll do it at the studio and I'll kind of be the like executive producer and then I'll mix it. And so this was like, I don't know if it was like late November of whatever year that was before the, the December deadline, before the December deadline, they said, okay, let's, let's give Brian the budget to do two songs. And if we like it, then we'll do the whole record. And so it was really like, I mean, they would never know if they listen to this now, they're going to know, but it was really like those, those two songs were like kind of a make or break, you, you know, point in my career. I didn't want to think about it that way. Cause no. you know, it's a lot of pressure, but, but, but did you feel pressure at that point? I did because I really wanted to make a go of it. And I knew that if I got this record, it would like, you Change. know, I'd be, I'd be okay for a while and it would lead to more, you know, because I hadn't been producing that much. You know, I'd been engineering for other people 
and this was like getting myself back into the production game, but with a very well-respected band, you know, that, yeah, yeah. that, that I, that I loved. So, you know, we did the two songs and I, I remember after the first night of, I think we were in the studio for three or four days and Kenny, the, the, the sort of main singer songwriter in the band, we went out for dinner and he's just like, man, I love this. Like, we're just going to do the rest of the record with you. So, you know, oh, that's and, nice. Yeah. So I just knew I, I knew then that it was like, okay, again, more validation. Like we're okay now. You know, it seemed that I had weathered the storm. Did you, did you think, like, I presume by this time you believe in yourself that ability was not a question. I, yeah. I mean, I mean, that was still like that. That was, you know, that's almost 10 years ago now, but probably a little more than 10 years. And, uh, I mean, I, I always, I'm a confident person. I have faith in myself, but you question, you know, like, you know, you'd always, I think it's natural in, in, in a creative environment to, right. to question your abilities from time to time. Um, you know, I'd like to think that it's those questions that sort of push you to learn and, you know, be, become better. And right. I don't think, I don't know that you're ever a hundred percent comfortable. Like even now no, right. yeah. I feel like, you know, there, I feel like I'm always growing from project to project. And I think if I stopped growing, then there'd be, <laughs> there might be some issues, but, um, True. but I, yeah. So what do you think it is about you that, that impressed or connected with both Bob Esmond and Dave Bottrell? Like what, what do you think it was that they saw in you that they were willing to work with you? I think, I think there were a couple things. I mean, I think initially Bob respected you know some of the musical talent that that I that I had in the studio um but I think above all it was like more of a you know like a personal connection in a way like he would always say to me things like you know most engineers I can't send to label meetings because they're antisocial but you're you, you, you know you're easy to get along with and and funny and fun and like you could go you could you you, you could go and take meetings right you know and I think that he saw that in me. Um, and then Dave and I, th that's an interesting one. Cause I mean, we became like kind of lifelong friends. I mean, Dave, I, I don't, I haven't worked with Dave in a very long time, but we, we chat very frequently. Um, he still lives in the city and you know, we're, we text a lot, usually about baseball. <laughs> <laughs> I got him into baseball during the time that we were working together. Um, but yeah, Dave and I just had, we, we just, we really got along. And I think to a certain extent, we're, we're very different people. Mm -hmm. um, he's like really well organized and meticulous in the studio. And I'm more of a like set up the microphones and go kind of guy. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, I mean, you'd have to ask him, but I, I kind of think like the best parts of each other sort of like rubbed off on one another where it was, you know, I became a little bit more meticulous and I think he sort of left some things up to chance in the end that he wouldn't have because of the right. way I like to work. So we worked actually like incredibly well together and I would always connect, like I would connect great with his clients. Like I think his clients really trusted me as an engineer and, and, um, and I think that was important for Dave, you know, with Bob, I, we, Bob was, when I met him, he had like kind of retired from being in the studio I mean, he never, I mean, he's back working. Now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's all constantly working. Um, but I was never in the studio with him a ton. Like there, there'd be the odd, like Brian, come do this vocal session with me or help me with this mix. But it was more that he would listen to all the things I was working on. Which is amazing to me. Like he, uh, he used to critique your work. He critique. Yeah. And that's like, how, how lucky are you? Uh, oh, to oh. And that's one thing I remember the first time we got together I mean, it it was surreal because I had remembered being a little younger and watching him accept a Juno. I, I think it was like a Lifetime Achievement Award or something. And I thought to myself, like, that's a guy that I want to meet because I really respected his, uh, his speech. I mean, B Bob is one of the most brilliant people you will ever meet. He tr truly is. Um, and so I met him at a party in Winnipeg during the Juno Awards many years ago and kind of had the balls to just say like, next time you're in Toronto, can I buy you a coffee? And he said to me, I'm moving to Toronto or moving back to Toronto in a few months. 
here's my email, email me your phone number and I'll call you when I arrive. And I'm like, yeah, right. (laughs) Is Bob Ezrin really going to call me? And and as luck would have it, one day, my my wife was actually pregnant with with our son. So she had stopped working at her her job and she was like doing a little bit of work at the studio and she happened to answer the phone and she's like, Bob Ezrin's on the line for you. <laughs> so I, uh, good thing you had your assistant answering the phone. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I, uh, I took the call and, and we went out for coffee and he had a, he had been away from the Canadian music industry for a long time. So I realized quickly that he wanted to kind of get the lay of the land. So I had something to offer to him. It wasn't just like me asking him questions. He wanted to know what was going on and what were like the successful indie labels and management companies. And, and uh, you know, at the end of it, I said, man, if only I had met you like five years ago. And, and he said to me, but you probably weren't ready to meet me five years ago. And that kind of really like, I've always thought about that, you Mm -hmm. know? You got to be, I think you have to be ready for when those opportunities come, you need to be ready to attack. True. Tell me um, one more question about both Bob and Dave, and I don't know if it's a fair question, but obviously two very successful producers. Yes. Um, who, who defined music in, in many ways and, and contributed so much to the history of rock music. What do you think they have? that special that 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 you thought well maybe i need to learn from that it's interesting because they're they're very different in their approaches um you know but but you're right both insanely successful so i just like i i can remember just sort of absorbing everything in those moments of being in the studio with both of those guys or anything surprise you when you was there any moment where they did something you thought, holy shit, I don't know. I didn't know you should do that. Or, I mean, I spent more time with Dave in the studio, so there were a lot of those holy shit moments. You know, when he really, like we did one project together after Bob introduced us, and then he took me aside and said, like, I really enjoy working with you. I think you're a good engineer. Like, I'd like to bring more projects to, to work on with you. And after that, he really just opened, you know, opened himself up to teaching me. Right. And, and at that time, I hadn't really worked on like aggressive, like harder rock albums, you know, and he, although, I mean, he's capable of doing like crazy amounts of work in lots of genres. I mean, having like had most of his experiences with Peter Gabriel, you know, very much like a world music guy. Um, But because of the tool records, he was making a lot of like heavy rock records. And so, you know, I got to learn how to do that which was really interesting, you know, how to get those big drum sounds, how to get the big guitar sounds and things that I'm still using in, in sort of my toolbox of, of techniques today. And this is really the focus, like that's your focus. I know you do blues, but really your focus is on rock. I've been a rock guy. I mean, I've always been fascinated with rock. Um, I think the, the biggest thing that I learned from, from Dave, just going back. So I think it's important is just, Spending the time with him that I did and hearing how things should sound coming off the speakers in the studio, like being exposed to those kinds of sounds and like, you know, top notch, like highest level of sound quality from someone like Dave and, you know, me helping him achieve those sounds. Um, And it was like three years of really just listening to all this well-recorded music really helped me because then after that, I never went back to how things sounded before, you know, it was just like, I had this, I I kind of had a benchmark of how things needed to sound and I would know to work until I got to that benchmark, you know, and it really, you know, from a professional standpoint, it, it, it helped me more than anything has helped me. Okay. Not getting too technical because I wouldn't understand it, but, and I understand getting the best sound possible in the studio, but does the approach to, mixing or recording change based on the fact that it could be heard either on an album, on a CD, on the radio, on somebody's MacBook, it's streamed now. Like, <laughs> like how does that change anything in terms of how you put together an album and, and how you put it like mix it together? I don't I don't know. I always joke around that I like to make records for headphone kids, you know, the people that are actually like really paying attention, you know, but it, I don't know that it's necessarily changed that much other than like, um, 
I do check my mixes on my, the speakers on my phone, which I never would have done before, or the speakers on my laptop, because if you mix a kick drum with a lot of bottom end and no top end, then you'll never hear it on a, you know, on small right. speakers. So you need to make sure that, that, you know, you are going to be able to hear because a lot of people are just listening to music through their laptop. Does that speakers. horrify you? <sighs> it horrifies me. I mean, yeah, as a lover of music, I think there's lots of things these days that might horrify me, but I mean, it is the nature of, of, or I guess it's the reality of where we're at right now. Right. Um, at least kids are still listening to music. I mean, True. there's a lot of other options for them in terms of, you know, entertainment and they're still, they're still listening, but. So in your ears, what does, like, if you hear something that you've mixed, go through Spotify, is it very different from what you hear? And well, obviously what you hear from the studio, but. Yeah, it's going to be, it is definitely going to be different, but I mean, I like, so after I mix, I send my work off to a mastering engineer and mm -hmm. they sort of put the finish, the finishing stamp on, uh, on the production process. So they take like, you know, mixing is taking all of the tracks that have been recorded. And then you end up with a two track stereo file. Right. And then you give that stereo file to the mastering engineer and the mastering engineer will, you know, do some, you know, some EQing and compression and whatever is sort of needed to make it sound the best it can sound on all the different mediums, you know, whether it's radio, right. CD, vinyl, um, that, but they will do, they'll print different masters for, for different things. Like there'll be a vinyl master. Um, there could be a, a, a master dedicated for, for streaming services. Um, so that by the time you do get to Spotify, it's, um, yeah, it doesn't sound like it did if you just listen back to the raw file in the studio, but it still sounds great. Right, right. Yeah. Because that's quite a difference, right? I mean, when I see things like mixed for iTunes, I mean, is there a big difference between the, the way it's mixed for iTunes than it is for a CD? Yeah, I've never, like, I haven't delved too far into, in, into those, like, the technical ins and outs of those things. But, but yeah, I mean, I remember going back to Aerosmith because I'm a huge Aerosmith fan <laughs> when they released the like mastered for iTunes versions of the albums. Yeah. I remember buying them all again because they sounded way better than the, you know, than the albums that had just been put up on, on iTunes, you know, a lot more bottom end, you know, a lot more clarity. Um, I guess it's just, you know, engineers figuring out like sort of those algorithms of, what, yeah. of, of what happens when you, you know, when you put music up on iTunes or Apple Music or Spotify and, um, you know, and kind of figuring out how to better master something to like combat what, what's happening digitally. Right. So, but yeah, there, it was like, I remember hearing it and just thinking like, wow, these albums sound great again. <laughs> so. Okay. Yeah. Something else you mentioned was that you mentioned you had a manager. Yes. So that's something that I had no idea that studio people yeah. Uh, have. So there so as a producer, mixer, engineer, you actually have a manager who who's out there looking for work for you or is he like He's so Joe Joe's based out of New York. Um he's been in the industry oh for for a countless year, maybe 30 years of experience. Um and his job is to manage studio personnel. So he manages yeah, producers and mixers. Um I think there's, at any given time, there's about 15 people on his roster. Um, I, I had a manager before Joe, but I had met Joe very early on in my career before I kind of needed a manager. Um, but I bugged him a lot because I, I really liked him. There's some, I mean, if you met him, you would see he's just got this very like big personality and you just kind of want to be around him. Um, and I, re I mean, I respected all the people on his roster uh, but eventually I got to the point in my career where it made sense for me um, to, to kind of work with Joe. Um, but but like everybody who works in this, not everybody, but most people who are producers, mixers, engineers have a manager? No. Oh. I think there's like, um, you know, select group maybe. Okay. And I'm honored that I can be a part of that group because Joe, 
I mean, yeah, he does definitely recommend me for work. Like a lot of times a label or a management company might call him and say, do you have somebody on your roster that would be good for this project? And so then, you know, we're all, everyone on the roster kind of has different strengths yeah, yeah. and we kind of all complement each other in, in cool ways. So, um, so yeah, that happens, but it's more that he, he sort of works on the business end of things. Like he does all my, my negotiating, um, contracts, you know, a lot of career advice, which is great. He's just someone to bounce ideas off of. Um, and, uh, I mean, he's seen everything, so mm-hmm. he always gives the best advice and, uh, it's just nice to have someone in your corner through all of this. Otherwise I would just end up working on my own all the time. Is this also because you deal with a lot of recordings with major labels or does that have nothing to do with it? No, it doesn't. Um, because I, I, like I had done when I, when I signed with Joe, I guess nine years ago, my career was sort of getting to the point where I was doing more major label stuff. But I mean, I guess he could see that in me and that that was going to happen. So, you know, he took a, took a chance with me. Um, but no, I mean, it's, you know, we do a lot of, I mean, these days that we do a lot of deals with sort of management companies. Um, but so he organizes all of that, all the paperwork, he negotiates everything so that all I have to do is focus, you know, on the creative. Um, but I work with him a lot in terms of like client acquisition because I mean, I'm out there in the mm-hmm. trenches, you know, fighting for myself and it's great to have him in my corner. But if I ever get lazy and, and, you know, leave it only to him, I, I don't think he would be happy and I wouldn't get as far in my career as I, as mm-hmm. I would need to go. You know, he sort of, we kind of work as a team to, to, to do it all. But how often would you go out and see a band and think, I got to work with them? It happens. It does. I mean, I work sadly you know i got into it because i love music so much but i have to work a lot so it keeps me away from going to shows you know we go it's it's cool because when i do end up going to to a show like the other night our lady peace played at the budweiser stage i got to go and they were playing with like uh, live and bush it was they were bringing back the somersault festival they created uh, back in the day and and it was just like I hadn't been to a big show like that in a while. So it was like just an amazing reminder of like why I do what I do. You know, you just get excited again. Yeah. And you get like, you feel that passion for the music. So it does happen that I'll go, you know, Joe pushes me a lot. He'll say like, okay, if you're not doing anything this week at night, take a night and go, you know, go to the horseshoe and see a band, you know? So I try to do that when I can. And sometimes I find a band where I'm like, I have to work with that band. Like the, do you know immediately yeah i'll go i'll go talk to them after or message them later and say like hey this is me this is what i do these are the bands i've worked with and like i think what you're doing is really cool and we could connect you know on a creative level so it doesn't happen all the time i think the older i get and the more (laughs) experience i get it takes probably a little bit more to impress me um Wait till you get to my age. It's not, that, it's, it's not that it's the impressing you. It's just you got to just get the strength to go out. Yeah, I know. It's hard. I mean, I like to wake up in the morning and see my kids. Yeah. So uh, I don't go out as much as, as I should. But And how, 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 much, how far are you booked? Like how many different projects are you working on right now? I'm wrapping up mixes on a, on a, a few different projects. Um, and then I start, usually I'm booked a couple months in advance. So I'll, I start um, sort of the second half of a project with a band from Nova Scotia that are going to come and stay with me up at Chalet for a week at the beginning of October. Right. Um, we did eight songs, I think, already. And we're going to go, we're going to do another five to kind of finish off the album. Um, and then once I finish those mixes, and I've got a, a, a local Toronto young band that I've been working with for a couple of years that are scheduled to come back um, and, uh, and, and do an EP. So that'll probably carry me out through December. So, yeah, but, it's usually a couple months. But a lot of times it's like, especially in the mixing world, like people don't realize that they need a mixer until the, you know, the, the, the recording is close to being finished. So a lot of times it'll be like, or we're finishing this recording. Can you mix it next week? And so, you, you know, you have to kind of like carve the time 
you know, to, to do those projects. Like but it, is it easy for you to estimate um, how long it would take to mix? Usually I, I estimate a day a song, but depending on what it is, you know, if it's like a live off the floor blues record, then I could probably mix, you know, three or four songs in a day. Um, after I've done the first one, which right. might take a little longer, but if it's like bigger rock mixes, usually it takes me a day. And oftentimes I like to sort of mix it might be a 10 hour, 12 hour day, go home and then come back the next morning with fresh ears, make final tweaks and then send it off to the clients and then move on to the next one you know, so, while I'm waiting. So one thing I, I never know, and I'm, my vision of the, the music world is somewhat limited, but but you work at a level that's pretty high where bands come into the studio and they might spend weeks and weeks and weeks putting together an album. Yes. Which, you know, if you're Eagles back in the 70s, it, it was months and years and whatever. Yeah. It made sense because you're going to make the money back. But I, I often wonder at this point in time if, if a lot of bands can't justify spending Thirty thousand, hundred thousand dollars in the studio because they'll probably never see that money back. How do you approach that? That's where, I mean, that's where I think a lot of the industry, or, or at least my business, has sort of morphed. Um, you know, that's why I find that I'm doing a lot more mixing these days than producing. Um, and I think it's only for the fact that, you know, like you, you take a look at. Jeff Martin from the Tea Party or Rain from Our Lady Peace, like they have incredible home studios, right. you know. So they chose to take some of the money that they made over the years and invested in into like really nice built out studios. So they're able to do a lot of the recording on their own, um, you know. Other than the initial outlay of cash, you know, they don't, it doesn't cost them anything. Um, but they all realize that they, you know, that that they can use outside mixers. Right. So. Whether my manager at the time knew or not, I mean, it was such a good decision for me to focus on mixing because I'm at the point where, yeah, you see that happening. You know, there are a lot of, a lot of bands have their own studios. They're, they're doing their recordings on their own. Um, the examples I gave you, like Rain and Jeff, make really great recordings at home. Right. Really great. I, I can't say that's true about everybody, but, you know, but certainly technology is at a point where, you know, most people can make really good recordings at home. Um, you know, they might not have the sort of knowledge that, that an engineer producer with 20 years of studio experience has, but you know, good, good, good musicians find a way of making things sound pretty good. Yeah. So, mm. um, so yeah, that, that's, I think how the business has changed a lot. You know, sometimes it'll be like, a band will come in, we'll do like some live off the floor recordings. Um, and then they'll take those tracks and go home and do overdubs and things on their own and then have me mix. So there's, there's sort of workarounds in terms of right. budgets. I mean, we, we put a lot of time and effort into, into recording, you know, the way, the way that I like to make records hasn't really changed, but maybe some of the money and the budgets that, are being spent on those recordings has changed. So it's sort of hard to like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to put any less effort into something because of money. I mean, no, you know, but at the same time I have to make a living. Yeah. So there has to be some sort of happy medium. And I kind of feel like, I mean, it's, we're definitely at an interesting time and there's, there's, I'm, I'm seeing more so now than, than before, than previous years, a lot of younger, bands where the musicianship is like pretty strong again you know i think like however the industry has been we've gotten away from from you know really great musicianship right you know like you had to in in the 60s 70s 80s 90s you had to be a killer musician for the most part i mean there's always exceptions but to to make it as a musician mm -hmm. in the music industry um it's not necessarily the case now, but, but I find like kids are like woodshedding again and they're, they're in their, in their bedrooms, like learning and honing the craft of their instruments. And making killer YouTube videos. And making killer YouTube videos. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but it's been fun to, to work on because I find myself at a point in my career where I'm like, you know, I could be 20, 25 years older than some of them 
and my experience is sort of coming up in the as a musician in the 90s you know i have all these like interesting stories that they tend to like latch on to you know like seeing pearl jam at the x or <laughs> with soundgarden and neil young and like the you know guns and roses yeah, yeah, yeah. on the use your illusion tours you know those types of stories where they're you know they're like no way and uh it's a neat I, I think it's a neat position to be in because I'm, you know, I don't consider myself being old, but I've had a lot of musical experiences yeah, yeah. in my life. So, you know, it, it's just an, another way of connecting with young artists. Well, many, many years ago, you were kind enough to help me with my little TV show where I had no idea what I was doing. And, and that's how I don't even know how I met you. I don't, I don't even, I was thinking about that too on my way over here. I, yeah. I mean, I remember working on the TV shows with yeah. you. But I don't remember... Like who introduced someone us? Someone must have connected yeah. us, but I don't know who. No, and it's been like, I don't know, 17 years or something since then. That's crazy. I know. But I, I really appreciate you taking this time. I, I, I don't know if we ever really got to know each other back then, but I feel like I got to know you a little more today. <laughs> awesome. So thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure being a guest. Mm-hmm.